Before we get going into your Hockey IQ podcast episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Rapid Shot. Rapid Shot is the smart shooting lane. Uh, it's like a batting cage for hockey players. Very cool. Tracks your shot in three ways. Accuracy, shot speed, and reaction time. Uh, easy to use. Uh, actually, I used it when I played and was growing up. Very easy. Simply scan your phone in, select your settings, and start shooting. Uh, you can see your stats on the app and online. And you can check them out at rapidshot.com. Uh, great small business. I actually grew up with one of the owner's sons and have played with all the family members by now. Uh, just in local pickups here in Ohio. Very cool local business. Awesome product. I love it. I know quite a few NHLers have them in their homes. Uh, a lot of D1 programs have it at their rinks. So you have to check this out. Rapidshot.com. Check it out. Rapidshot, thank you so much for sponsoring our podcast. On the podcast today, we bring on Brian Kane of Prodigy Hockey. Uh, I already screwed up his name a few times on this. Uh, it's not Keen, it's Kane. Uh, but everyone else, look at the pronunciation. Tell me I'm wrong. Uh, you're wrong. That's funny. Uh, super good guy. Really enjoyed our chat. Anytime you can learn a new hockey term, uh, that's a win. Because I feel like, you know, at this point, you and I pretty much have down the vernacular. But uh, Bendy is a popular term on this episode. And I think that everyone will really enjoy digging into that. Uh, I'm glad Greg, that you clarified what that all meant. And uh, it was, like I said, it was a large part of our chat. So really interesting stuff. Yeah. It's the, the benders of the game and the bendies of the game. Uh, I'll let which you determine one you? which one you want to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So no, this is a great episode. I think we dug into a lot of topics that we could dig in even further um, but we wanted to make sure we got through a lot of these concepts because they're, they're so valuable for players. So I'm excited for this one. Uh, without further ado, our conversation with Brian Kane. On the podcast today, we bring on Brian Keane of Prodigy Hockey. Really excited to have him on. Uh, he's doing some cool things in the hockey world, especially on the side of player development. Uh, Brian, good to have you on. Thanks. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So get us started here. Uh, give us a little background. I know you uh, didn't exactly start in hockey, but now you're gladly in it. So uh, what was that journey like? Yeah, well, you know, I played some college hockey at UMass, played for the Steel uh, before that. And once I was done at UMass, didn't have a played a, a couple of games over in the, the uh, uh, Magnus League in France and decided that I don't have much of a future in professional hockey. So um, came back home and uh, got a job with my old built family actually in Chicago and worked in marketing and um, advertising and um, kind of lived in that world for a little bit and really enjoyed it and uh, learned a ton. Um, and that kind of led me to a few other gigs and, but all on the way, was trying to build prodigy up and, and got into, you know, doing small groups and lessons. And I always had the, the itch to get back into, uh, into hockey at some point and was really fortunate that I could kind of work a, uh, you know, a day job, but also keep doing the hockey on the side and eventually turning into a full-time gig. That's awesome. What led you to start prodigy and what were the early days like? Yeah. So, you know, I looked back at my career um, as a player and was just really interested in 
you know, why I didn't pan out essentially, you know, what, what was holding me back from playing professional hockey? Um, you know, at 16, 17, I was probably considered an elite player. I played on the Ivan Holinka team, which is now like the Gretzky cup or whatever it's called. And, um, so at that point was, you know, probably in the upper tier of my age group at the 88 birth year and went to juniors, um, had a great start, but then struggled, had a lot of adversity, um, then went to college and just never could really get my groove. Um, and then ran some concussion problems, which is ultimately why I didn't continue to play. Um, but yeah, I went back and just figure out, okay, if, if I could do things differently or things I should have been aware of or development wise, like what could I have done to put myself in a better position to maybe play some, you know, pro hockey in North America. Well, now, now you're kind of giving back uh, through the Ryan Hardy experience. You've done that like once or twice now. Right. And it, I feel like that's exactly what, what you're talking about is what do these kids need to know at the earliest of ages? So maybe go into one, some background on why you think you didn't pan out, what was missing, and then two, kind of put that into what you guys are doing over at the Ryan Hardy experience. Well, I don't know if we have enough time to go through <laughs> all the things that, why well, I didn't pan out. No, you know what? Um, I think, and I think this is something that Ryan Hardy and the Steel are doing a really good job of. When you move up levels, uh, you're going to have different challenges and you're going to have different things that come up. And I was, I was a player that was very, I learned my skills very implicitly. Um, so I wasn't, you know, I remember my coach and junior telling me, man, you do, Kaner, you do this great 10 and two move. And I was just like, what, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're referring to, but thanks. I appreciate the compliment, but most of the things I did to solve problems on the ice, I wasn't acutely aware of. Um, so once you run into some roadblocks where things aren't maybe going the way you had hoped, um, you do need some knowledge of the game to understand it's a self-diagnose and then start to work through it. And then I kind of went to the like uh, very extreme end of that and started to become so focused on my techniques and things of that nature that I really was not integrated into games and focused on the right things. And, you know, when you start to think about Oh, how am I exit? How is the puck feel on my stick all the time? Or my hands don't feel great tonight. Your attention can't be on the, the uh, game and the problems you need to solve in those moments. So I finally found some, a role at UMass in, in my junior and senior year and played it to the best of my ability, but certainly felt like I left a lot on the table as far as my, my technical skill was fairly high end, but my ability to apply that skill at the higher levels and anticipate and read the game. And um, I didn't develop those things along the way. And, and when you lose confidence, right, you start to think about some of those things more versus being in it and uh, tuning into the right uh, things to make good reads and decisions. Um, and rolling into the second part of that question, I got that in, you know, short amount of time. That wasn't too bad. That was good. Um, <laughs> there's more, but. I, I was just going to say, let's, why don't we hold off on the second part? Cause I want to dig more into that. What's, you know, what's your personal philosophy on how to bridge those two things, especially when you're working with younger players? Obviously, we want to focus on technical skills, but they have to be able to blend into a game. So, like, I guess just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's, you know, where this is all going. I think for a long time it was very 
technically focused. And now it's, it's really about, you can't square peg round hole a, a technique into a moment. So how do you build adaptability and flexibility to perceive and see what's in front of you to take action on? So, and that's what I'm, and I think you can, you know, certainly you can, you can isolate and, and focus on certain techniques to get feel and to build some confidence. But ultimately I'm really interested in, can you be flexible, adaptable in moments that you're going to be in a lot? And how do we create those experiences for the players in practice to be able to work through that and solve it themselves with, you know, support of a coach as a guide, as someone who can help facilitate that learning versus, Hey, you got to do this here or, you know, or else, right. I want them to make the decision. I want them to feel consequence if it doesn't go right. But the, the environment and the, the drill is giving that feedback back as well as me in certain regards. All right. Now, now we can jump into the Ryan Hardy experience. So I, I call it like a summer camp on steroids, but uh, I'll, I'll let you maybe explain it better than that. Yeah. Ryan. Um, well, just selfishly on the coaching end, there's so many great hockey minds there. So just being able to kind of rub elbows with a bunch of those people, including Ryan, obviously um, was a lot of fun for me and, and great for networking and, and learning. Um, and then on the player side, I think he really gives a pretty unique opportunity some, to some young up and coming players to, yeah, have some um, coaching from, you know, the Granados to Brandon Arado to Adam Nicholas to Belfry, you know, you name it. Most of Ryan has most of those people in his Rolodex. So that's a unique experience. And, and then you get to play and you get to showcase yourself too. Um, and Ryan does a really good job of organizing and facilitating that um, for a full week, which, you know, the kids get a lot out of it, um, have a lot of fun. And you can tell that they leave there with some, some, uh, you know, good interactions and hopefully taking something they can take back home, keep working on, and also, you know, get their name out there a little bit too. Maybe what were some things that either one, you taught the kids or something maybe you learned as well, just rubbing elbows with other coaches and also these high level players, because it is invite only. Yeah, I'd have to think back at some of the session designs, but for me, kind of going back to what we just kind of talked about a little bit, um, you know, I want to put players in situations that they have to adapt and have to adjust and, and really make a skill or technique bendy in certain moments. So like we spent time on retrievals, we spent time on point play for D we spent time on, I mean, you name it, it was probably covered throughout that week, you know? Um, but for me, yeah, that I want to put players and challenge them that way and have the challenge point be appropriate to help them, you know, in the moment, start to see some of those things and be able to take action on it. Uh, and then hopefully later in the afternoon, you know, be reintroduced to some of those moments in the game and, and be able to perceive and take action on some of those opportunities within those moments. Um, and then selfishly as a coach, uh, you know, like just chatting with, you know, Adam Nicholas and Brandon Nerado and Topher Scott and Ryan and you can go on and on. Like I, I took so, so much from those weeks. Um, it really was uh, a pleasure, and I, I'm very fortunate to have been included in that. Bendy. I haven't heard that word be used in an ice rink in a really long time. Uh, usually it's it's for the young ones <laughs> yeah. and how bendy their, their, structure are, their, their structure is. 
right. can you maybe go a little bit further into when, when you talk about bendy? What what do you mean yeah. there? And give some some good examples for us so we can visualize that. <laughs> yeah, the hockey context is probably not the uh, usually doesn't lead to maybe what I'm describing. But what what I think of bendy is Austin Matthews changing the point of release through pressure at whatever the uh, opposing D is giving from stick pressure, angle, uh, gap, like he has a solution. That's what I, that's bendy to me. Um, to most hockey people, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta sell that a little bit more, I think. Um, but just being able to adapt, being able to, you know, like just think talking about if we're going to go on Austin or whoever, but the players that can, be in moments and be able to whatever the D or the situation is presenting them have solutions to. And, and, you know, I feel like players that don't aren't as skillful um, aren't able to provide solutions to those dynamic problems as well. So I want, when I'm working with a player, I want to figure out, okay, where can we, based on your assets, based on things you do really well, what, and, and the frequency that you're having, you're in those events or those moments, how can we make you more dynamic and send you, you know, variation A, B, C, D of that pressure and have you start to have to interact with it without knowing what's coming, depending on, you know, where we are in that learning process. Are there any common attributes you find amongst players who are particularly bendy or conversely aren't? Yeah, um, they're able to anticipate better and start to take action. So they're not reacting to someone normally. Usually they're taking action and like in Austin or Kaner or whoever, they're threatening something, whether it's space, a teammate, the net, and they're starting to move the pieces versus um, kind of allowing the D or the oppo opponent to dictate their movements. So di they're, they're dictating over reacting. And I'm guessing where you're going with this is they're putting players in situations where they've got to make decisions, where it's a little awkward. They're kind of playing on the edge of that defensive coverage, things like that. Is, is yeah. that right? Right. Yeah. I want to be, have an advantage. And if I can threaten something and make you move on it, I can predict in real time and read you better versus if I don't know what you're going to do now, I'm on my heels. I want to be create predictability for myself so I can set you up or put you in a position where it's advantageous for me as the puck carrier or defender. So when, when you say that, I'm, I'm thinking that we're, we're going through routes here, like routes and habits, right? Those are the two things that help give predictability uh, within the game. So mm -hmm. is, is that kind of where you're thinking about is like players that are bendy, they've got better habits, they understand not just their technical skills, but how to apply that and then be able to build off of like, uh, uh, like bridge points where you come to something and you have three options here. And based on what the defense gives, you take one of those three. Uh, so one, is that right? And then two, um, maybe, maybe touch on the importance of routes, habits, things that like, um, I, I know, uh, Brand, Brandon Saad, who, who's now with the abs, I think that was something he really grew in, with his game uh, from early years where he kind of just was almost hoping a little bit. And now it's almost, he knows what he's going to get and when he's going to get it and how often, and then he's mm -hmm. able to better produce from that and be a better 200 foot player. Yeah. Well, I think for the NHL player, especially and, and the high end NHL player, you're probably going to have moments that you're in pretty consistently 
the the makeup, the color of those situations might be a little bit different. Well, they are going to be different every time in some capacity, right? But they they have some similar makeup. So for me, what I'm talking about, yeah, the patterns and the habits that you have in those moments. Um, I don't really believe in like, I guess, patterns per se, but I believe in principles of what you're trying to do, having intentions or intentionality around what you're trying to do, and then being able to adapt on the fly, not going in with like, oh, I'm going to do this here and force it into, you know, that moment I can. And that's what I mean by bendy or flexible is I can threaten something. And if you move on it, great. If you don't, I still can adapt to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. You're, you're basically setting up a situation. You're not going to do something specific, but you're basically leading the defense into a certain situation. And then you've got three items in your repertoire, two items or some kind of idea what you're going to do next based on where they're deficient because no defense can cover everything all the time. Yeah. Well, again, in all different situations, I, I feel the best players are available, able to keep options available. Right. So I mean, it could be a pass option. It could be a, a pocket of space they want to attack. It could be the net, whatever it may be. They're aware of those things and they're threatening them to then start to move that opponent. Now, if we're talking training or, or get like training, I want to put them in that moment with a little bit of um, that variability. So they have to actually read the Dean adjust. So they don't really know what's coming, but they're trying to make it more predictable for themselves because of what they're threatening. So it sounds like you're not a big fan of having obstacles or objects on the ice. Uh, I think, you know, there's a time and place for all things potentially, but I would say a very small percentage of, well, nothing I do is going to have an apparatus. But it doesn't mean that certain coaches can't get something out of that. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But I, <laughs> I believe, you know, I believe that decisions are made based on uh, opponents, space, the net. So if those things aren't incorporated in my change of direction or, you know, uh, escapes or whatever your your the technical thing you're trying to work on if there isn't some sort of thing you can couple it against and read against then it's not going to be as flexible in the game it's going to be i'm reading off a cone which you can couple a movement with a cone i guess but it's not going to allow for you the player to have interactions with what they're going to see in a game where you know there's a human there that's moving and you got to on the fly be able to to read them and adjust um, and hopefully start to move them like we've been talking about with some that dictating movement. Sure. I, I want to be sensitive to this because I know that you can't give away any sort of secrets or anything, but um, talk to us a little <laughs> bit about how you approach it, approach building your sessions then. Yeah. My sessions are, um, you know, I study the player's game. I, I figure out um, areas that, you know, they're really proficient in and areas that maybe we can spend some time on. Um, but I really want to know, like, what are they good at and what do they do? You know, what do they do really well? Let's keep improving that and make it more adaptable, dynamic. Um, but everything I, I do is in, you know, it's based on their gameplay. So when you're talking about studying, like, what, what are you looking for? Are you tracking stats? Are you tracking just patterns and things that you pick up? Or is there a systematic approach that you have and how you like to go about that? Yeah, I, you know, I try to look at it 
um, from the first person's perspective and try to figure out, you know, how are they thinking in these, you know, what are they seeing in these moments to, to drive some of the action? Um, that's what I'm really interested in. Then what scenarios, um, you know, are, con you know, consistent for a player and that they have, they have problems or have a problem solving. Um, and then like with the top players, you're just studying, you know, players across the board. Yeah. I, I want to see what kind of solutions they have. And, and everyone has kind of unique, you know, uh, technical components that are, that are fit their game and um, are assets. I want to find out, you know, how are they using those? And, you know, I, and I think it's, to me, it's important that like players understand that there's, there's no, uh, you know, there's a bandwidth for technical and for biomechanical that we want to stay in and functionality, but each of these top players in the NHL have unique ways they solve things. So I'm always really curious to watch like the Ajos of the world, the Pasternak's, the, um, you know, the Brinkett here in Chicago, like guys that solve things uniquely, um, how are they doing it? And I want to kind of deconstruct that. It sounds like video is a large part of, you know, the, not just the pre-work, but the ongoing work. Uh, has that changed, you know, as you've evolved and, and like, what's your, what's your video setup look like? I think just like, and that's why I was excited to come on the podcast. Obviously I've read the website and listened to some of your other um, interviews and, you know, I'm just in, I'm always trying to improve and look at things a little bit differently. Um, I have things that I, you know, fall back to and really think are effective, but I'm always, you know, trying to push the envelope and look at things a little differently, you know, studying different defensive habits to studying how people stick check, how people make contact with players in the wall, like what the different variations are, that stuff I look at. And I, and I want to know like uh, across the board, all these unique solutions that these players have that work for them um, that might not be, you know, common. So when, when you're looking through, how has your eye for the game changed, I guess, over the years? Have, have you started looking at the game one way and then just kind of rolling as you find new things that are interesting to you, kind of change it? Um, we had Daryl Belfrown. He was thinking the same thing. And he said at one point he was just basically watching the game through shapes and how shapes evolve. I'm curious mm -hmm. what it is for you. I think what I've become like recently and, you know, and hopefully it keeps evolving just how like the best stick handlers and playmakers, how, how sensitive they are to pressure. That's something I've been really kind of narrowing in on and, you know, and how, you know, when someone's on your shoulder, how calm some of the best playmakers are because of how they perceive and feel that pressure. So I I've been recently really getting into, and I say recent last few years, you know, how like what builds that sensitivity to that pressure and why are some of the best playmakers in the NHL scores? Why are they have a higher sensitive sensitivity to stick checks or, or, or contact or what have you? Um, why do they, why are they much so much better? That's what I've been trying to dissect more. That's really interesting. I'm kind of curious. I've been, I was just talking to somebody today about how, uh, you know, COVID nobody would have drawn up 2020 and 2021 to be like this. Is there anything that you can take from the last, I don't know, 14, 15 months as 
I don't know, maybe if not a positive, but as something like a new best practice, something that'll impact the way you work going forward? Probably Zoom. Yeah. Zoom was kind of a, you know, we, I had, you know, with players that we do video with normally, you know, we would have some discussion on the phone or after they've reviewed what we put together for them. Um, but we've really integrated, you know, integrated the zoom conversation into what we're doing and it's been great. Um, and mostly because of the discussion, which, you know, which has been huge to know what they're seeing, talk about what they're feeling in some of these moments more and get more intimate with some of that stuff. That's been, that's definitely been a blessing for sure. So you've been studying that pressure. You've been having these conversations. I mean, what, what are some things that are maybe you probably don't have a set list of things that you've come to conclusions on, but maybe what are some things that are coming to light as you're having these discussions, as you're studying about contact, understanding the options, especially with these, these top playmakers? Yeah, no, I, I think just the sensitivity to certain things, like I mentioned earlier, like, you know, how can you be a little bit more calm to feel that contact, to know that, you know, if I'm getting cross-checked and I can feel my bottom head, I can get under that stick. Now I have a lane to get by the position and get away. Um, you know, if I'm collecting a tough puck on the wall, how can I settle it quicker and then get some, start to feel out and see over that inside shoulder to pick up where that pressure is coming from to make a better play just some of those conversations um, and, and kind of mostly figuring out like, why, you know, why is that hard for you? You know, and things you'd think were really hard for them weren't and things that you thought were easy for them are harder. So just kind of becoming more aware of their, you know, things that they need to become more aware of or, or, you know, aren't able to like get comfortable within some of those moments to be able to realize uh, and be more successful in those situations. That's, that's really curious. Um, I'm a very cerebral player from, from my days. So just no I, I would go hundred percent skill, 0% physicality, I would say. <laughs> um, and, and the skill wasn't good enough to go very far, but nonetheless, um, for me, it's very much a perception of, of space and, and spatial awareness is always something I've found that's come very natural to me. Mm -hmm. um, are you finding that at the elite levels or kind of 50, 50 or, how does a different type of player perceive pressure, perceive space? Oh, that's a great question. My, from what I've studied and have seen personally, the best players can pick up the most relevant task specific information, meaning it could be space on, you know, in front of an opponent could be uh, the opponent, you know, poke checking that top hand, the best players seem to be able to, over the course of their careers and through training have been able to identify what the most important information sources are to make good decisions. So that comes from, you know, task expertise and being in it a lot and having success. Um, and then also, you know, coaches that can guide and direct your attention to some of those information sources. That's what I see as far as, you know, elite players and, and players that are heading that way, like how they're, you know, developing. That is fascinating. Okay. I wanted to ask you about trends that you're seeing. Is there a skill or maybe skills that 
you found yourself really harping on in the last, I don't know, call it year or two or three, that was something that you, when you were playing, never really would have, um, you know, worked on. Uh, and I guess as a quick follow-up, is there anything that you see maybe being eliminated from the game um, at large that we're still teaching that you're kind of going away from? Um, I think just, you know, something that I've been on and, and it can be expressed and executed in different ways. It doesn't have to be one way. Um, I think that's kind of the main thing I've gotten away from just trying to pigeonhole players into certain ways of doing things. But I think as a principle, um, being in a, having the, if you're possessing the puck, having it in a threatening position, and I call it the holster, everyone calls it something different, but making players aware of how they can utilize that position to give themselves advantages. But, but yeah, that's, I think that'd be one thing that I definitely did not utilize as a player that I wish I had in the toolbox or was more aware of um, back then. And I'm sure my coaches probably were trying to get me to do it. And I just, it didn't uh, click. Um, but yeah, that would be something that, you know, I think is, can be utilized by a lot of players and um, something we definitely spent some time on. And then your second, sorry, can you repeat your second question? No, you're fine. Um, I guess something that is still being taught that you're trying to like do away with as you see the game evolving. Yeah. Nothing that comes to mind uh, right at this point. That's right. I think just evolving how we train is, mm. you know, what I'm, you know, and I think there's a big wave of coaches that are taking and applying some of the principles of coaching that I, I utilize and we do at Prodigy. Um, but that'd be the biggest thing, like kind of getting away from um, isolated work unless it's absolutely necessary. And then there are times for sure. It's a spectrum. There's, there are times, but trying to help our players become more dynamic um, through putting them in scenarios and experiences where they have to problem solve and, and make plays and, and invite certain actions. If we're working on a technical component, um, inviting that through our design. All right. Let's say you're watching a playoff game tonight, which I think we probably all are. What are you <laughs> looking for? Like what's, what's going on behind the eyes? What am I looking for? Um, you probably just to, I don't even know if I'll watch it as a coach necessarily. And I just try to enjoy it, but I love figuring out how offense is created. So I'm always watching what's happening 10, 15 seconds, 20 seconds before that rush is uh, emerges. What's happening, you know, uh, in the defensive zone, what's the winger doing um, to anticipate the, the offense, the, Defensive team capturing the puck and then being able to um, carry it up the ice. Like, what are we? What are guys doing off the puck? Is probably where I spend most of my time when, when I'm watching a game like tonight. I'll I'll be watching what they're doing off the puck to figure out who is going to end up with it and, and why and what they're doing to anticipate it better. So, what do players that are good off the puck doing? You know, what makes a player good off of the puck? I feel like everyone says, oh, they're not good enough off the puck, but maybe some specifics uh, that yeah. truly make a player great. Well, I think it, it comes back to some of that, um, some of the things we talked about earlier as far as being able to anticipate what's going to happen. And, and like if we just take that example we were just kind of – I was talking about – you know, if I'm that weak side winger and the puck's in the corner and the opposing team has it currently, um, you know, when are we going to win it back? And where do I need to be once we win it back? 
and where I'm going to, where do I need to place myself or two steps or three steps ahead to be available. And I think a lot of that comes with it. Um, you know, your scanning habits and your ability to predict, you know, in real time or a few steps ahead where the puck's going to end up. Um, I think you see that a lot of the best players seem to have a little extra quickness and speed, a little extra jump on some of those scenarios because they're predicting at a higher rate than players that aren't as good at anticipating. Yeah, uh, that makes total sense. I guess my follow-up to that is how do you go about teaching that? Is it through video? Because I'd imagine in small area or in small groups, it's difficult Mm -hmm. to work on, you know, more five on five concepts, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, I think you can scale that down. So like what, you know, for, for instance, the scenario I was just talking about, you could have a two V two going on below or one V one going on below the hash marks in the offensive zone. And you got to predict when your teammates going to get it. So you are already in motion. So what are the information sources that are going to allow you to be more predict better? That's what you're trying to become more aware of. Um, and that's where you can watch t- video is great for that too. But, you know, I think, you know, that's more knowledge of versus knowledge in the moment. Knowledge in is when you're, you're in it, you're perceiving it and, and anticipating it better. And you have to, for, to become better in those moments, I think you need a lot of that exposure. And l- like you said, five on five, it might only happen three times in a game or four times in a game. So we need to scale it down and, and place it in practice. So you get a ton of repetition without repetition. So it's, you're in it, you're, there's some variability, but you're still having to read it to the way, close to the way, not exactly the way you would in the game. So you must be a small area drill connoisseur trying to create all of these environments. I, I bet you've racked your brain a few times over on, on creating some good ones there. Um, so this will be a two-parter, and that'll be on the back end of maybe <laughs> how you design your drills and how you try to force things without – making it static, you know, giving that variability, making that player bendy. Uh, But first and foremost, starting with what you just touched on there, knowledge of the game versus knowledge in the game. What's the difference? Well, I think at least for me, you know, knowledge of the game is, you know, we're watching video together. We're talking, we're declaring knowledge around certain principles, concepts, um, we're talking about it. We're discussing it. We're in class. Knowledge in the game is you're in those moments and you're seeing the, the, the pieces of, you know, the player's weight shifting, the puck becoming loose, um, certain uh, signals in the game that are going to tell you, okay, here's my next movement. Um, and, you, you know, or with the puck, I'm faking to the right. I'm seeing that guy's weight shift. Now I know I need to go the other way. Right. So those pieces, those signals in the game that are going to allow, tell you what to do in the moment, um, that's, you know, in-game knowledge versus knowledge of. And I think you need, like I talked about, I think earlier in the intro, I think you need a complement of both. I think both can be very helpful. But, you know, there's a reason, you know, certain NHL coaches, skill coaches, they, they know a lot about the game, but they can't get in there and make those decisions at that high a pace. Right in those moments. So that's, that's the difference, right? Yeah. And then it's about putting them in that environment and creating those drills. So that's, that's where we're heading with the second part of the question is, is maybe uh, how you go about designing those and what are maybe some key elements that help you force players down the development paths 
that you're looking to get. So it becomes not just skill of the game, but skill in the game and being able to execute off those cues. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for me, it's, I don't want to force anything. I want to give them invitation A, B, C of how they want to solve it. And they, they have the, they're choosing it, but I've constrained it in a way that those options are available to take. So I'm not, I don't want to force it. If I can help it, I want to invite them to start to interact with it in that way. Um, and they're going to, hopefully they're going to solve it in their own way and, and, and build off of that. And then I can come in and we can talk, watch some video. We can talk about it, knowledge of, and say, Hey, like, let's consider this, or this is maybe how you can adjust here. Um, but then just letting them put them back in it and keep working it and solving it. And there has to be a task goal. There needs to be an end point of what we're trying to do ultimately where there's success or failure. So the, the, the little game or the um, activity we've created is giving them some feedback as well as, you know, coach. Um, and I, you know, I talk about like, for instance, like vi we've all played video games, right? When you first get your on level one of whatever you name the game, you usually don't feel too coordinated, right? You're kind of like, ah, I can't really, you know, if I played NHL right now, I'd probably be a little uncoordinated with, <laughs> with my fingers and all that. Right. But all of a sudden you're on level eight. Right. But you, cause you've had an opportunity to, to be in that level over and over and over again. There's no constant, there's consequence cause you have to restart, but you get the opportunity to keep going at it and learn. And you're not really thinking about now what your fingers are doing. You're just solving it. So that's kind of how I think about skill development a little bit is I want to create that experience for them, let them go work it. And based on how I design it is going to invite certain techniques and, um, you know, and then we kind of, again, <laughs> we don't want them to be a bender, but bendy in some of those moments. <laughs> love it. Love that. Love that concept there. Um, so based off of that, we're talking about iterations and continuing to find success and failure and helping that guide them. But sometimes results can be difficult to say, Hey, was the process good that led to those results? Mm -hmm. Um, how do you find the balance between that? And then how do you find your ability as a coach helps speed up the learning process through those iterations? Yeah. Well, I think, you, you know, we constantly have to be tracking learning and behavior change. And, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there will be a result in the game that we love. But if we're really fine tuning and going after certain behaviors that we want to evolve or change, it, it, it is, you know, we, we can kind of see it emerging and starting to improve. Um, but I, it's, yeah, it's imperfect. And sometimes it's not easy to track or easy to, um, you know, be able to pinpoint like, oh, we got it. And especially with, if you want to give players some autonomy and help them work through these scenarios, you know, they may solve it some, oh, a different way, which is great. But and it might not be exactly the way you had drawn up, but hopefully that's and that's where like the coach and the um, the player they're the protagonists they're the most like it's their game right so we're just there to support and and help them keep moving forward and give them ideas and um, guide them but they're the ones that have to solve the problems and 
how, and they have to express their athleticism and their style in a certain way. That's awesome. I love, I would say that you're a bendy coach. You're able to bend <laughs> to the, to the players. So we're going to say it's not just the players. It's the coach here as well. Brian Keen, who can uh, bend with the best of them. Uh, well, I got, I got one last question here for you. And again, thanks for coming on. I think this was a enlightening conversation and a lot of people are really going to take a lot from it. Uh, especially because I like how you, you challenge players not into one specific item, but to make it their own. So that's really great. But with that, all of us coaches are a little bit biased. We all have the favorite thing that we like to teach and favorite skills or favorite situation mm -hmm. we like to teach. Um, is there one or two for you that you just love digging in and doing? Obviously, I already touched on offense a little bit and how that's created. So I'm assuming uh, your study then stems into how you're teaching. Yeah, yeah, I definitely – I love working on the offensive principles of play and, and, and allowing players to work through some of those moments. Um, I think that would probably be my, my, go, my go-to. I, I love working through and helping players become, you know, hard to read and add deception and layers to their game that way. Those would be, I think if you ask some players I work with, what that would probably be it. But I, I do try to, as much as I can, you know, it's about the player and what challenges they're having to deal with every game. And that's, that's where we land usually, but on the general across the board, I definitely, I want to help players become harder to more adaptable and harder to read and harder, you know, to, to stop in the moments they're in and be able to play make. Absolutely. Well, to echo Greg, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Before we let you go, why don't you, you know, plug your work where people can find you, your company, and uh, any other parting words? You know, I, we uh, have a Twitter at prodigy-hockey. Actually, at prodigy hockey. Whoops. Um, <laughs> maybe you can put it in the show notes. I, I got I to gotta go check that out and make sure I'm giving you the right uh, info. Um, we also have a website, prodigy-hockey.com, where you can you know, work with us through video um, or come into Chicago and work with us on ice. Um, but yeah, uh, and happy to answer any questions anyone has on any of these, these topics. I talk you know, with a lot of coaches and it's, oh, I, I really enjoy talking about it. And, uh, and, you know, I learning a lot constantly. I think that's the biggest thing, you know, I've the last, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years now almost. And I've just, I'm so fortunate and have learned so much. Um, and I, that's what I probably love the most about it. Just keep, you know, learning new things and trying to apply it. Um, and I appreciate you guys and I can see you guys are the same way. So I appreciate you guys having me on. Wonderful. Well, again, thanks for coming on. Uh, make sure to definitely share all of these conversations in public. So everyone go on Twitter and tweet at them so we can all see and all learn and get, all get better. Uh, you know, that's the whole point and why Dan and I started this is to really help this game grow and get played in a much better way. And Brian's doing great work and everyone else. So thanks again for coming on and uh, we'll definitely have you on again, for, for further conversations. I feel like we only scratched the surface on a lot of topics. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Hockey IQ podcast. We are Hockey's Arsenal, Greg Rivak and Dan Ducart. Together, we've come together to create a platform and a community to expand on hockey intelligence, hockey IQ, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're very passionate about seeing this game played smarter and better and continue to develop itself uh, to the next level and staying on the cutting edge of things. 
So you can find us at Hockey's Arsenal on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We're also at Hockey'sArsenal.com. From there, you can find some resources and some options to work with us. We're excited to continue this. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, follow, and share. Uh, You can also join up for our newsletter as well, where we're going to tackle anything Hockey IQ related. So we're excited to have everyone here and continue to build. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch a Buttes here next week for a brand new episode.